Hello, everyone. Welcome to another episode of the Firm Returns podcast. Uh, this week, I'm going to go through my latest update on Tiny Build, which I released, I think, oh, yeah, on Monday, I think it was. Yeah, July the 18th. So I'm going to try something new, which is going to be sharing my screen. So you'll get to see, read along with me if you want. Um, let's have a look. Obviously, uh, people listening to the listening to this won't be able to see it, but I'll, but people who are perhaps looking at it on YouTube or can uh, read along at the same time if they want and see the graphics and so on that I reference. So right, let's let's have a start. So I wrote about Tiny Build back in March, um, and it's it's fair to say that a lot has happened since then. So this is going to be an update covering, amongst other things, recent game releases titles currently in development, the 2022 annual report, the recent trading update and outlook for 2023, and the AGM, at which I was one of two external attendees. So I'll talk about the valuation in more depth later on, but I think it would be remiss of me not to mention the share price. At the time I wrote in March, the price was 51 pence per share, down from the IPO price of £1.69 pence. Today it stands at around about 10 pence. So it's by well, the time I wrote this, but it has since gone up to about 13 after I published this write up. Um, yeah, the, that 10 pence figure was not far off a 95% drop. As you'll see from my portfolio updates, I've been aggressively adding to my position, which is growing very substantially in terms of share count and may grow further over the coming months if prices remain this low. It goes without saying that everyone should do their own due diligence and not be swayed by me when deciding whether or not to make an investment themselves. While I endeavour to remain as objective as possible, you should note that my shareholding does create the potential for bias. There will also be points where I present my own opinions on qualitative factors that, which are largely subjective. Don't take these as facts. So with, that, with all this out of the way, let's have a look at the release pipeline. So I'm just pre-warning this is going to be a, a long episode because I think the uh, the write-up ended up being 9,500 words, my longest to date. So um, yeah, let's have a look there. So when analyzing the performance of games post-release, there are a number of data sources we can use to help gauge their sales numbers on PC, including SteamDB, Play Tracker, VG Insights, and Steam Spy. An interesting um, thing as well, I think. I heard that. Yeah, I must remember that. I think there was some there was some collaboration between one of the creators of Team Spy and someone at Tiny Build doing a a joint podcast, Russian speaking podcast, something like that. So there was a little bit of a link there actually between company and team spy uh, sorry steam spy so the sales numbers listed on these sites are usually estimated as usually estimates calculated from metrics like the number of reviews active users steam followers etc and can vary for consoles there isn't such publicly available data to build estimates from so it's purely guesswork unless the company has released its own figures what we do know is there's a fairly even split between PC and console gamers. This is uh, globally, not not um, 
specifically with tiny book um with a reasonable amount of overlap e.g pc gamers owning consoles and somewhat different demographics because of these different demographic because of these demographic differences there'll be some games that sell much better on pc than consoles and vice versa a lot of this will come down to how well suited a game is to playing with a controller versus mouse and keyboard an example of a game from Tiny Builds' portfolio that sold much better on consoles than PC was Hello Neighbor. SteamDB estimates the game sales on P- on Steam at somewhere between 365,000 and 912,000 copies based on 12,165 reviews. But we know from management that the game has over 70 million downloads across all platforms. I expect a chunk of this will come from the fact that it was down that it was added to Xbox Games Pass, but this is not to diminish the feat. While Hello Neighbor was a runaway success, any game that passes 1 million downloads is likely to generate significant profits for the company, and there are a number of such games in the portfolio. A recent entry worthy of study is Potioncraft, released on the 13th of December 2022 after an early access period. You can see from the graph below that the game has grown to have more than 112,000 followers since its initial listing on Steam, with a few notable steps. The first coincided with the release of the game in February 2021. You see that here. The second with the release of the game of the early yeah the game in early access in September 2021. That's here, and then the third when version 1.0 was released in December 2022. So this, and this is where we're, where we're sitting now, up over 112,000. The game has 21,375 reviews in total, of which 92% are positive. And the game still has a daily peak concurrent user count of around 1,000. SteamDB estimates the number of copies sold as somewhere between... 427,500 and 1.18 million. We know from management that the game has over 1 million downloads, with 700,000 of these occurring during early access. Prices vary by country, but I'd say the game has probably generated between 5 to $10 million in revenue from PC sales, and judging by the active player counts and new reviews each month, it looks to still be generating steady income. Alongside the release of version 1.0 on PC, the game was also launched on Xbox and is included with Game Pass, so we can expect additional revenue from here. Yeah, something to note when I was talking there, back there about 1 million downloads and 700,000 occurring during other access. Those 700,000 would 100% have to have come from PC because that's the only place where the early access would have been um available and um so yeah i think the million greater than a million overall for pc really adds up just from the the tracking on the graph and what have you so yeah let's carry on so we should see a subsequent launch on both playstation and nintendo switch this year as well the game seems a particularly good fit for the switch player base so i'd anticipate this port producing good returns It's often the case that porting a game to consoles costs as much as the original game development, so expected sales need to justify the expense. 
With this in mind, let's have a look at some recent and upcoming releases. So let's start with the recent releases. Uh, we've got Mayhem in Single Valley. This game was originally released for PC back in May 2021 and is estimated by SteamDB to have sold between 5.1 thousand and 13.9 thousand copies based on 253 user reviews, of which 89.72% were positive. The estimate for, from VG Insights falls within this range at 7.6 thousand, but the Play Tracker and Team Spy estimates are far higher at 144.8 thousand and 194.0 thousand, respectively. So I don't know whether they're factoring in some kind of um, estimates for consoles and so on as well, but um, yeah, they're pretty dramatically higher. Supplementary to these sales estimates, we also know the game has 3,407 followers on Steam, the majority of which were obtained after the game's release, and a combined 3.3 thousand across Twitter and Facebook. The game is well suited to playing with the controller, so it could be that it sold well on consoles. Management evidently believed this to be the case, as they signed off on ports to the Nintendo Switch, Xbox One and PlayStation 4, released in March this year. Given the relatively low development costs a game like this incurs, it's quite possible that they made a decent profit from sales across all platforms, but I don't expect the revenue contribution to have moved the needle much. Then we move on to the, the next game. So Bookwalker, Thief of Tales. This game is probably a little higher budget than Mayhem in Single Valley, despite being developed by a two-person team, as evidenced by its simultaneous release across PC, Xbox, and PlayStation on the 22nd of June, and high-quality cinematic trailer. Yeah, it's worth a watch, that trailer. It's quite, quite uh, well put together. Do My Best, the developers behind the game, previously made Final Station, a game with 41,804 followers on Steam, 86.76% of which... 86.76% uh, of the, the 7,560 reviews, positive, and sales likely in excess of 1 million copies across all platforms. So there was a precedent for the Bookwalker to follow. So far, the game has managed to gain 10,024 followers on Steam, and SteamDB estimates its sales to be between 10.2 thousand and 27.9 thousand from 508 reviews, of which 95.87% uh, were positive. And other sources also put the number somewhere in this range. Not a bad start, and evidently well received by those that have played it, but it probably hasn't done quite as well as hoped given the money spent on marketing it. Again, we don't know how well the game is done on consoles, but it is included in Xbox Game Pass, so we can expect there to have been some upfront revenue here. One negative I've seen is that the game appears that it appears the game was released to Xbox with game-breaking bugs. I don't know if this was true for PlayStation as well, but it does seem that there are QA issues with some of the smaller game releases the company is putting out. This can have a serious impact on the overall success of the game, as early momentum can be crucial. And bugs that lead to negative reviews are a sure way to kill it. So I have actually played um, Mayhem in Single Valley as well, 
Um, well, personally, I do own that on the Nintendo Switch. So I played that and I did encounter a situation where, a couple of situations where the game crashed and I didn't think I could get past it. But um, it did work. It did turn out there was a way to get through it. But it is an obviously easy thing to encounter. So it was something that I would have expected to have been picked up if they just had, if they had some people playing through the whole game prior to its prior to its release so um so yeah i think i think it's all been out since but yeah it's it's a little unfortunate that these things are not getting resolved on some of these smaller titles makes you feel a little bit like there's being their publishing capacity is being stretched a little by some of these um do that they're focusing more on more of their resources on the own ip titles and not really perhaps doing enough with the ones but anyway that's just how it's looking but um yeah after ending on that next note we move on to farwell pioneers so this game was released on the 30th of may for pc and xbox with real potential incorporating a unique blend of features such as an open world such as open world survival co-op gameplay colony simulation pvp slash pve combat and 2d pixel art a number of the developers have also previously worked on hit games such as starbound and rimworld with similar characteristics the game built a decent following prior to its release with over 7,000 followers on steam and 4,000 on twitter which helped bring substantial player volumes at launch they evidently exceeded expectations as at one point the number of concurrent players was enough to bring down the game servers. A lot of this volume is likely to have come from Xbox where the game was included in Game Pass as according to SteamDB the all-time peak in concurrent players on Steam was just 628 which shouldn't have been enough to, to bring down the servers. I think I saw something about 65,000 concurrent players and that was all brought down but I couldn't find i think it might have been a tweet or something but i couldn't find that so i didn't include that here in the in the article but it's potential that that was the the, the initial figure or maybe seventy five thousand. that was initial quite high concurrent player volume figure that was enough to bring down the servers maybe i'm just imagining it unfortunately the game was not as polished as it should have been and released with a boatload of bugs and issues that quickly killed its momentum. Out of the 436 reviews on Steam, 59.4% are negative, and follower numbers are starting to roll off at around 9,000. Concurrent player numbers have also fallen steeply since launch, to a daily peak of just 28 on the 6th of July. Again, we don't know the numbers for Xbox, but given the issues, I wouldn't expect them to be much better. On the 6th of June, the developers put out the update below, stating that the PlayStation release planned on the 14th of June would be delayed so they could focus on fixing the game on PC and Xbox. So I'll just, uh, you can see this here, but I'll just read it out for the benefit of listeners. Dear treasured pioneers and future pioneers, we understand that the PC and Xbox versions of Farwell Pioneers have launched with a number of issues and we are working hard to remedy the situation as soon as possible. All the PC updates will come to the Xbox version at a slightly later date. We have decided to delay the, the planned June 14th PlayStation release temporarily and will announce a new release date soon. We owe it to those that have played and paid 
for the game already to make fixing the existing version of the game a priority. Although we would like to share fixed timelines, we don't want to make promises we can't keep. We are a small team and we need to make sure our patches go live with proper testing to alleviate the chances of introducing new bugs. Where was that? Where was that testing with the initial release? We are working non-stop to fix major issues, improve AI, and solve some of the common problems raised by the player feedback. Thank you for your patience, Igloosoft. The game fits squarely into the games as a service category, and as such, the developers are continuing to work on it with a pipeline of new features beyond general bug fixes and quality of life improvements. With this in mind, I think it's too early to give up on it, as there's still the possibility of recovery and the game becoming a long-term success. Far World Pioneers still has a decent following across a number of platforms and therefore the means to engage with players, but it's undeniably going to be an uphill struggle. So they've, and then I've just included here a screenshot of their uh, milestones for 2023 and 2024 so these are new new features beyond the sort of bug fixes tweaks and quality of life features that they've got they've got planned so they're adding sort of additional planets new ai pathfinding and pathfinding improvements new colonists modding and steam workshop support new ship designs multiple star systems fire water gas Colonist social mechanics and prisoners, vehicles, wiring, mini games and side activities, animal husbandry. So yeah, there's still a lot of work going into it, and it's, it, there's a, you know there's a chance of the game recovering and um, and having a good, you know, becoming a success long term. But it's certainly not got off to a good start, unfortunately. To my, to my mind, this game would have benefited from an early access release on Steam that could have resolved many of the issues encountered and allowed for a smooth launch. This approach has been used with a number of other titles in the portfolio to great success, and is particularly useful for ambitious titles like Far World Pioneers, which have complex moving parts, not least online multiplayer. A final concern I have regarding the release is the potential loss of confidence from Microsoft. The game was was included in Xbox Game Pass, so there will likely have been some upfront payments made to it for its development. To have it subsequently flop on launch due to QA issues, quality assurance issues, is reputationally damaging. Yeah, rather than just the game not not being a, a popular bit, I think it would have been, if it hadn't had the issues, I think it would have done very well. As we'll address later on, much of this upfront revenue is expected to disappear in future. That's in the uh, upfront platform revenues from, from Microsoft and so on. And while this is largely due to the macroeconomic environment, I do wonder whether some of the rushed releases we've seen have been a factor. Let's move on to something more positive, virtual reality and Roblox. The company has recently released three VR titles, not for broadcast VR on the 23rd of March, Kill It With Fire VR on the 13th of April, and Hello Neighbor Search and Rescue VR on the 25th of May. Judging by the 256 ratings on the MetaQuest Oculus website, 80% of which were five star, 
Kill It With Fire VR has been a resounding success. Not For Broadcast VR has been similarly well received, with 94 reviews of which 64% were 5 star. Hello Neighbor Search and Rescue VR has had more mixed reviews, as you'd expect for the larger franchise. Has had more reviews, as you'd expect for the larger franchise, but these have been a little bit more mixed, with a few reporting bugs. But it probably was the more ambitious of the three games anyway. In all three cases, the games were developed more for strategic reasons, expanding their respective franchises onto new platforms, than the expectation of major profits. In this regard, I think we can say that they have achieved their aim, and have also demonstrated the company's ability to make games for emergent platforms as technologies. Speaking of which, the company has just released an official Roblox version of Secret Neighbor, the multiplayer entry in the Hello Neighbor series. This is added to the already broad list of platforms on which the game is available. So it's yeah, it's quite positive. Just generally, the this is something they've done as well with um, games on iOS on the on Apple App Store and so on. They've got quite a lot of their titles actually on there. I was surprised. I had a look the other day, and I was surprised to see how many. Well, I knew that the Secret Neighbor was on there, but I didn't realize that quite a few other titles were on there as well. Um, including the the original Hello Neighbor game. And I think it was, I think there was a couple of other ones like um, possibly Killer with Fire. Or I think Totally Reliable, the resurface might have been by um, by making, this up, making these things up. But yeah, there's quite a few titles on there. And so it's really been, they've obviously got a uh, good avenue for porting these games across. And it's, it's, I don't think they make a lot of money from it. Maybe it's sort of roughly break even, but it's largely just a case of increasing the player base and a lot of people that perhaps discover the game on there. And it's a fairly limited experience playing some of these games on a on a phone or a tablet or whatever. So um, it then helps to draw them to go and buy the game on a PC or, or their consoles or whatever. So it's, it's good marketing, I think, good from a strategic sense. And it's just something that perhaps a lot of the other smaller independent publishing studios don't do you know they certainly i don't think i've really seen many other um other smaller independent publishers of that putting vr titles out there for instance or or mobile games they're really focusing just purely on their on pc games or maybe some console ports and so on so yeah it's it's good to see and i think it really does help to raise the profile of tiny build generally as well and and of their these individual franchises so it's a good strategic form of marketing i think and i think it's roughly breaking even from what i understand um maybe maybe a small profit on some of these more successful ones but yeah it's not it's not as good um for a, a direct pro- i mean it's a bit like um you know companies making TV shows or whatever game companies making TV shows and things like that, which is something that Tiny was also doing um, to help draw additional sales back to their to their games or or um, yeah, similar kind of stuff where you'd have companies basically making cartoons to sell the toys and the toys are what actually make all of the the profits before the the age of video games and stuff. Um. Anyway, right, so let's have a look at some game updates and DLCs. 
So in line with the company's move towards a games as a service model, we've seen updates and new DLCs, which is downloadable content, if anyone doesn't know, for a number of games in recent months. I'll quickly rattle through a few of these and spend, then spend a bit of time looking at a couple of games in more depth. So first of all, we've got Secret Neighbor Summer Camp. This free update went live on the 15th of June and adds a number of new features to the game, including account and character levels, traps and shortcuts, and a new detective view to allow players to spot hidden objects and nearby valuable items. As mentioned previously, this game is available across many different platforms, so the PC figures might not be fully representative. But let's take a look to get a, a rough idea of where things stand. The game currently has 133,135 followers on Steam, slightly down from its peak two years ago of just over 136,000. In terms of concurrent players, we're looking at 24-hour peaks of around 300, a level that has been pretty consistent since release. Now, I believe this is a game which has cross-platform support as well, so there might be that even if players, these 300 players or whatever, playing concurrently, um, are able to still play a larger pool of players on on, on consoles and so on. So, it, um, yeah, it could be the game overall has still got, I don't know, a thousand plus players. And especially if you're looking at the mobile stuff where it's effectively free or, or pretty cheap, just a few pounds, whatever to buy, um, there's, you know, the potential for a much bigger player, player base overall there. But I don't know how much cross platform support there is with the mobile users. But yeah, certain, some of the platforms do have cross platform support, I believe. So we can say that the updates are keeping players engaged with the game, but not really growing the overall numbers. This is not to imply that the game is no longer generating income, but there's still a steady stream of new reviews each month, which should translate to good ongoing sales numbers. So next up, we've got Spider Heck, R Park, and Quality of Life updates. So since its launch back in September last year, Spider-Heck has received a number of quality of life and feature updates. This has included the addition of a new parkour mode in, sorry, a new parkour mode, a versus mode map editor, and a whole roster of new weapons. The game has an active player base and growing following, giving it promise of being a long-lived addition to the portfolio. Its Steam followers, sorry, its Steam following has now reached 12,651, and its Discord server now has 10,660 members, which is a, certainly a good number. In terms of concurrent players, PC players, it's managing daily peaks consistently above 150 players. There are also ports to Xbox, PlayStation, and Switch, with plans to add crossplay support later this year. Yeah, it does seem to be this has got quite a good um, active and enthusiastic fan base so it's um yeah it's it, it is a game that i think and it does seem to be continuing to grow over time with the updates and so on as well so it's it's been it's got quite a decent potential to be uh to have a decent life on it this game it is a game that naturally 
it's not a single playthrough type game. You know, it's very much a game that can be come. You can come back to it again and again, keep playing it. And it really, uh, the online online multiplayer and everything is uh, it's, it's particularly set up for that kind of engagement. I'd say it's a real sort of like party, a real party game. It's something, yeah, you'd want to play with friends and things like that, which would be just good. Kind of a rem similar, I guess, to something like a a brawling type game like um Super Smash Brothers or whatever on the on the Switch. That that kind of similar game concept. But it with a fairly unique spider parkour type environment. So next up, we've got Not For Broadcast, which has had a live and spooky DLC and some other console releases. So in addition to the aforementioned VR release, Not For Broadcast was also ported to Xbox and PlayStation on the 23rd of March. This occurred at the same time as the release of the live and spooky DLC, wherein the player gets to run a TV studio during the live recording of a paranormal ghost hunting show. 80% of the 75 reviews for this DLC on Steam were positive and it generated a decent jump in the number of concurrent players for a couple of weeks after the release. Yeah, which is quite clearly, I don't got the graph here, but it was quite clearly shown on the graph. You could see a nice jump in the number of uh, players after the release of that, that DLC. So it's um this is this is the point of the downloadable content is it brings players back to try it out. It brings in additional revenue from the sales of it and what have you. And and generally reviews of DLCs are quite a bit lower than the, the base game, even if the sales were pretty good. Um just because yeah, it just that's the way it often works. People focus more on the base game when they're when they're making their reviews. Or if they've already reviewed the base game, they're not normally going to add reviews to the to the DLC. But overall the game now has 37,329 followers on Steam. Around 85, sorry, 8.5 thousand across Twitter and Facebook. 4,876 members on its Discord server. Sorry, and, 40, and that many on its Discord server. In total, it now has 9,459 reviews on Steam, of which 94.58% are positive. So very... That's almost, if it just got up to 95, it would be classed as on Steam as overwhelmingly positive, which is like the highest ranking a game can get. And um, estimates of sales range all the way from 189.2 thousand to 1.43 million, depending on the source. I'd be pretty confident in saying this game will sell over 1 million copies across its all platforms in its lifetime if it hasn't already. So that does seem to be, just to give you a gauge, I do think if a game can get to something like close to 10,000 or around about 10,000 plus reviews on Steam, it generally seems to be that, especially if it's cross-platforms, you've got other things that overall it will sell over a million copies. And that's like a a pretty good... um that that should give a pretty good return for any game any game that can hit a million overall copies sold um is is probably going to have generated a really really nice return for the company overall not it's still not a um you know just a crazy 
viral hit or whatever but it's it's if you can get a good the company can do very well on just a good uh, number of these million plus um selling games so this is a, a good example of that as was um was potion craft which probably had yeah overall that one's probably going to sell more potentially up in the plus, two million plus if you're you're counting um, future platform release, uh, cross-platform release, and so on. Not not cross-platform, but other other platform releases, console releases. So um, next we've got Cartel Tycoon, which has had some updates and DLCs as well. So Cartel Tycoon continues to receive free updates and new paid DLCs with a regular cadence. On the 3rd of April, we saw the release of the Fight and Stash update, which includes a complete rework of the combat system, a new building type, arms dealing, and a new campaign. This coincided with the launch of the La Familia DLC, containing five new lieutenants for players to add to their cartel. On the 29th of June, we had another major update, which the developers called Gangs of the De- Ojeda. In this update, we see the addition of gang alliances, conflicts between law enforcement and enemy gangs, an updated tutorial, and a new user interface for negotiations. The next major release for the game will be San Rafaela, the San Rafaela DLC, featuring a brand new map with 12 additional territories. If you're interested to, to give this a go, they've now got, a, I think, a playtest open you can go and participate in to... Um, yeah, to help the developers out with testing it before its release. Um, so yeah, it has a brand new map with 12 additional territories, new campaign and ferry routes for transporting goods. Yeah, and I mean, this is really, as I'm going to say in the next sentence, this really is a, um, a the biggest update so so far for the game. And it's it's almost like adding another another game here because of the, the size of the map and the new campaign with it and everything like that it's really um yeah it's a real sort of quite major addition um to the game as, as kind of a similar thing that you would see perhaps with um some of the big updates you get to some of the the total war games i've played some of them in the past and i remember playing medieval 2 total war and if you play the base game versus if you install something like the crusader update that completely changes the map and the the campaigns everything it was a major major update almost like adding a a whole new game um in there so that kind of that's what we're starting to see here not just sort of small additions we're getting completely new games effectively with these some of these updates um anyway yeah so so we don't have a release date for this dlc yet but it looks to be by far the biggest update for the game since it's version 1.0 launch last year and it is quite impressive they've effectively i mean i know they've got the base sort of game engine and whatever to build on but they've effectively created almost an entire new game in a in a year from the the base the base game so yeah, it's, it's been plus doing all those other updates along the way so yeah it's been quite impressive um that they've managed to create this in that time so it's clear that moon moose the developers of the game are putting it a lot of effort into updating and expanding the game for players. So let's see how the numbers are looking. 
since the game is only available for PC, the figures available for, from SteamDB and other channels should give us a fairly accurate picture of the game's overall performance. As can be seen from the graph below, the number of Steam followers continues to grow, and right now sits at 31,170 alongside this. The game also has a combined 4,000 followers across Twitter and Facebook and 6,665 members on its Discord server. So yeah, really quite positive graph here. So you can see, I think around the time of its early access release, we've got a pretty big jump up to from below. So I mean, this is quite illustrative as well of um, games that have a roundabout, uh, you know, above 5,000, sort of up to 10,000 followers or more prior to their release on early access or just general release can can be well positioned to have a pretty explosive um growth in in sales and followers and, and players um post release and then yeah quite positively here i mean we saw a similar thing with potion craft had a similar kind of around about 10,000 or just under followers before its launch and then blew up to be sort of a hundred thousand whatever because that one was quite a big hit or oh, certainly rapidly successful uh, with the early access launch and stuff um but this one yeah it's doing quite well twenty thousand. then we've had a pretty big jump when it did its version 1.0 and we're yeah it's growing another 50 percent the follower base since uh its launch really and then and it seems to be each update's giving it another little jump in the number of followers I imagine with this big update, we should see another jump. So it might, might take us up to, might be end up getting up to around the 40,000 mark or something uh, within within the next year or so. Um, but yeah, it's just positive to see it continuing to grow. It does seem to be still drawing in more players as, as a lot of the updates have been making some pretty major changes. Like um, even that fight and stash one completely changing the reworking the combat system, for instance, it's going to completely change the feel of the game for people playing it. So yeah, some, some big changes going on. So the game currently has 2,777 reviews of which 77.67% are positive and estimated owner numbers range fairly widely between 55.5,000 and 365,000, depending on the source. With the game's price tag being a little higher than some of the other titles at $29.99 or £24.99 in, uh, in pounds, this translates to greater than $1 million in gross revenue, even at the lower end of this range. So what's encouraging for the game's longevity is that it still frequently records daily peaks player counts over 200 and as shown and as shown in the graph below the release of both the sacred lamb update on the 30th of november last year and the final stash update on the 3rd of april this year have coincided with, with a substantial boost in player count so yeah we see here 30th of november this this one and then here we've got the final stash update which is another big big boost so yeah, it's quite positive. And I think I mean, this this bodes well for giving us. I mean, with this new update with the Samurai Feather, we might be seeing an even bigger peak when that finally comes out. Um, but yeah, these these two peaks have taken us up above sort of five hundred players, which means we know people have been 
continuing to be drawn back and engage with the game as as it new updates continuing but just the baseline seems to just be fairly stable around this sort of 200 plus players 200 to sort of 300 players across the week um each day these sort of peaks so yeah let's um let's now move on to have a look at the dead side which is when it comes to players um sorry games of the service titles this is potentially the highest potential one in the company's portfolio right now and and probably the yeah it's maybe not in the future because there are some other titles will i'll announce later on um well that have been announced that i will go through later on but it's certainly right now is the one that has the probably the biggest player base and the and the highest kind of it's the most the most uh ambitious title let's say and um and the, the biggest so um yeah let's have a look so while still in early access dead side has already accrued a substantial player base it currently has 95238 followers on steam which is uh, the only places i think it's available at the moment uh 26097 members on discord and 13,000 followers on Twitter, and finally 8.13 thousand subscribers on YouTube. You can see the Steam follower growth on the graph below. Um, yeah, so I mean, when it released, we had a very substantial jump up to over 50,000 uh, when it first released in early access, and we've just seen very good, strong growth since then. Um, taking us up to to close to hundred thousand now, uh, with with the continued updates and improvements that we've that have been released with the game. So um, concurrent player numbers are are also very healthy, with daily peaks consistently above one thousand and boosts every time a major update is released. See below. What's more, BG Insights gives the average total playtime as 94 hours demonstrating the game's replayability even in its early access state so yeah that to sort of as i've said before the company's aiming to try and make games that can be played for over 100 hours so if we've got an average total playtime of already 94 hours for this in its early access state we've uh we're hit as this fall is you know really hits that that target um yeah i mean looking at the follower numbers I mean, I I know from myself when I've there've been other games that have been in early access for many years. I remember, um, I think Mountain Blade, Bannerlord was a title I'd played the early games like Warband and stuff about when I was um when I was back in high school and things. And really, they'd really been games I put a lot of hours into and enjoyed. And I remember I was incredibly hyped for the um, Mountain Blade Bannerlord, the the new title was just the graphics opening out and the clips and things like that all looked amazing and it took a took a, a long time for it to come out and then it was in early access for probably a couple of years or something maybe well, at least a year um and i remember playing initially in early access and you know encountering a few issues and things like that and seeing the game improve but just seeing oh this is great and then i sort of just moved even though it potentially got into a a much more refined state before the the final launch i just kind of thought right i'm just gonna 
sit on it now and just wait until the official launch and it's, it's polished and I'm not going to have to worry about losing my save state or anything like that. Um, and I think that's that's going to be the case for a lot of these followers, um, the people that are now just going, oh, we've played it, it's a great game, had a, had a go of it, and now I want to follow and wait until we get the version 1.0 release, which is when the game's going to be the most, they expect it to be the most stable or whatever, and can you don't have to worry about getting all your yeah stuff wiped and so on with with major updates that come out uh which is something that still happens now like um when they do the the major updates for dead side for instance they uh well i don't think with the since i've started i have played some dead side um and since i've been playing it i haven't had my all my items on my person and um in in my stash and stuff like that in the safe zones wiped but um I also haven't done any base building yet, but I know that people that had built bases, they basically get removed from, they they were removed from the map because they were doing some major upgrades to the base building sort of mechanics and having new um, building types and what have you. Um, so they basically had to wipe everyone's buildings off the map, which does kind of, it takes away something, you know, if you, if people have invested a lot of time into building a base of land, it gets wiped. And that, that's something that, you shouldn't they they won't need to worry about uh when it does the the full release so people might be playing it and going yeah great and it's still a really good game i've actually been um playing it with a got a friend to play it as well um and so we've been playing it together and it, it really just multiplies the the fun when you've got a couple of people um doing it. yeah we've been having a good time with it so um i think it's gonna be a game we're probably gonna keep playing long term anyway it's just a yeah a, a good fit that way but um but yeah so it's it's definitely a game uh it just just making the point here that that early access phase uh you might might not be representative of what the kind of players will be like when we when it goes to the full release but but anyway it's i mean it's still doing over a thousand a day concurrently you know so it's still good numbers and when i've played it i've played i think a lot of people like to play on there's um uh community servers about people that have actually set up their own servers and so on to and hosting them and they have maybe their own discord community or their youtube own youtube channel or twitch channel or something like that and they and the people that follow them on those platforms will then come and play the game with them so there are quite a lot of stuff like that and i think that's probably where a lot of the daily users perhaps are but i just play on one of the official uh company's servers and um yeah, there's normally, normally at least, uh, uh, a, you know, a good. I think normally it's around about ten players. I mean, the actual capacity of the servers is about fifty, so it's it's not not full capacity. But like I say, it's just one of the official servers, and there's a lot of them. Um, and I mean, to be honest, it's quite good because being a fairly, being a fairly new player and stuff like that, it's um, it is. A, I'm I'm playing on a PvP server as well so other players can kill me and stuff like that so it's kind of nice to to have fewer interactions but we still have had a few firefights with um other players and things like that so it's been uh yeah we have we have definitely there is enough it and it's small enough at the moment as well the map is i mean it's big twenty five thousand square kilometers but because people generally congregate to specific missions and things like that you do end up having a lot of encounters with other players still anyway um if you start going for 
you know, some of the harder missions, which are the kind of things that people will go for, especially sort of near the safe zones and things where, where people will be going to trade and stash their stuff and things. But, uh, but anyway, yeah. So if you, if you wanting to have engagement with other players, there's, there's plenty of that on there. Um, and like I say, you can also find servers where it, there's a community, a real community around that particular server. If you want to, to really get in and do a lot of PVP stuff, but, but anyway, yeah, still very, still very active. Um, and very positive from that point of view. And they're adding, even just in the time I've been playing it, just a couple of months or something, they've added quite a lot of new features. Like they've added new boats, fishing, new sort of survival aspects to it that weren't there when I first started. So it's it's just improving even in even in the last couple of months that I've I've been playing it. So yeah, very positive. But anyway, let's um carry on here. So Deadside currently has 30,327 reviews, of which 77.66% are positive. And Stephen DB estimates the number of owners as between 606,500 and 1.67 million, while most other sources put it around the 1 million mark. Since TinyBuild acquired the game back in September of 2021, they've expanded the development team from the original six to at least 20. This has allowed development to accelerate with major, with new major updates every few months, each bringing new features that further enrich the game experience. Recent examples include the addition of boats, new missions, map areas, weapons, equipment, survival elements, and expanded base building. The team has put out a roadmap for the rest of 2023, which you can see below. The addition of a city to the map is likely to be a big draw for existing players, as it adds a new urban warfare dynamic to the game, and tutorials will make the game more accessible to new players who currently need to go through external sources like YouTube or the game's wiki to discover all the mechanics. So I've sort of found this has been, it was a bit of a struggle for me to get going with the game. I had to go away and watch some video. I mean, this is something that's true of a lot of games. Like, I mean, even games that have been fully, I remember playing, um, imperator rome which is a paradox interactive title and um i remember playing that and just initially picking it up and it was just impossible to play without without first watching a tutorial i just had no idea what the hell i was doing and just just watching a few hours of somebody else playing it then allowed me to to pick it up and understand how things work and and yeah and and really being a game i really then enjoyed afterwards and it's kind of a little the same with dead side um, at the moment you 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 know you, you have things like uh you have hunger and thirst levels and if you don't address those <laughs> then you'll uh, you'll start to die of of hunger or thirst so or of, of starvation or dehydration so these the things like that and then knowing how to where to get water and things like that are all kind of fairly essential things which when you've got tutorials will will be really good but before that <laughs> i've uh it was somewhat frustrating to begin with until i learned it so it was good when i got my uh got my friend playing it because i was able to tell him a lot of these kind of things and immediately just got him going with just within a few hours he was immediately you know and now we're ex- ex- on, right up to speed and exploring yeah together and doing uh you know trying out new crafting things and what have you stuff that I hadn't even done b- before as well. So it's been, um, yeah, it's been good from that respect. So we've got 
you can sort of see here on their roadmap that a few things that have already come out, like the, the fishing, inflatable boats, new weapons, smoke grenades and so on, have already all come out with the latest release. But then they're looking to add uh, new animals, um, tutorials, expanded sort of boat functionality. So we now have a, um, I think this is something that has happened. There's now a vehicle lock so you can store items on on boats and things like that and and lock them to prevent other players stealing them and stuff and then expanded base functionality so they've already added some things like new towers and things but um then and they've teased a prone position and um then this new big city which i think is going to be a really major major addition and there'll be some more map areas around that as well and then we're talking There'll be new missions added as well, as you can sort of see here. And then some sort of redesign of some existing weapons as well. So continuous engagement with players allows the development team to prioritize their work on the most important features, helping to de-risk the project and substantially increase the probability of its success. This engagement comes in a number of forms, but one example is allowing members of the community to participate in the testing of new features and changes on specific test servers before their release. At this point, it might serve as an interesting exercise to estimate the game's revenue contribution since it was acquired by TinyBuild, and what we might expect from here onwards. There's going to be a lot of guesswork involved here, and I could be wildly wrong, so take it all with a healthy pinch of salt. So first, let's start with what we know, which is that the game produced approximately $3 million in EBITDA in 2020, the year of its early access release. So we know this because this is what was disclosed by the company when they they acquired it. Um, we also know that 50% of the game's re uh, reviews were posted in this time. And if we use this as a rough analog for sales, the total EBITDA generated since the game since the game launch is six million dollars. Similarly, we can see that sixty seven percent of the reviews were posted prior to TinyBuild's acquisition, putting the EBITDA generated for the game, sorry, for the company, at approximately two million dollars. It's about a third of the total. We think. Um. So I would expect this figure to be a little lower given the additional capital TinyBuild has invested to generate to accelerate the game's development. So we can arrive at this figure another way by going bottom-up to calculate the gross sales. If we assume the game is selling around 150,000 copies per year, which might be an underestimate, might be an overestimate, but I, I think it's based on the number of views as well that are being added each month. It sounds pretty reasonable. Um, and then multiply this by an average retail price of, say, um, $12 after subtracting sales tax. We get a gross revenue figure of $1.8 million. Subtracting Steam's 30% cut, we're then left with $1.26 million from which ongoing development expenses can be subtracted, which I as question mark 500,000. So this lines up fairly well with the previously calculated figure. Um, as in, 
you take away the ongoing development expenses. Um, let's say that leaves you with 750,000 and then multiply that by effectively two, which is roughly how long they've now had the game. They've now in the game a little less. And then you've got, yeah, you sort of one and a half to two million dollars figure arrived at from a bottom-up approach instead. There is a component of contingent consideration to factor in depending on the game's performance, but we can see at this stage that the ongoing development of the game is most likely being well covered by its sales in early access. So moving on to the release of version 1.0, there's a realistic prospect that the game could be a major hit and sell well north of a million copies in the first year. But let's be conservative and assume it does 500,000. This would likely be at a higher price of let's say $20, giving it us a gross revenue figure of $10 million. And I'm not sure how they'll price it, but um, I know similar games um, are probably have around about the uh, $20, $20 after after tax kind of after subtracting tax kind of figure is is fairly ballpark for them so maybe like $25 something headline figure so uh, let's say and i think the reason they they price them at that kind of level rather than being way higher or whatever is that they they're really wanting to get as many players as possible um because it the game really thrives on the multiplayer sort of aspect of it so making it a little bit more affordable um helps to really draw that in um, and that's where it kind of differs perhaps to where you've got Cartel Tycoon, which they're charging a bit higher price for actually, but maybe it'll end up being, they're charging the same price as that, but that game's not really a multiplayer game. So um, it's getting that really big player base or whatever to, to have that continuous, a lot of concurrent players or whatever is um, is not quite as important for it. Um, so they can have a bit of a higher ticket price but um, but anyway, yeah, we we don't know what it'll be, but let's just be fairly conservative and say it'll be twenty dollars, uh, so a little bit higher than the the current early access price. So um, and that will give us a gross revenue figure of ten million dollars. So the company will receive seven million dollars of this after Steam and any other platforms take their cut. And um. Yeah, we might expect expenses to be higher in the year of release. So we can subtract $1 million from this to give us, to leave us with $6 million in EBITDA. And then onwards, onwards we can probably expect at least $1 to $2 million contribution from the game each year. So yeah, that's kind of like a fairly conservative estimate of what we might see in the year of release and beyond. Um might be 2024 I'm not sure that sounds like a fairly plausible year they might release it towards the end of the year maybe or something um considering we're already on version 0.6 i think so yeah we're getting, we've had a, quite a few major updates um but yeah so you're looking at and i think the company originally paid um around about five or six million i think for the original things so, i mean that it would be well yeah, they'd be getting their well getting covering when getting their money back and then getting a decent sort of yearly uh return on it from then on 
um, as just for however long the, the game lives. I mean, some of these games, like um, the really big hit ones, not even even the really big ones, but some of these games like Day Daisy Rust, um, similar titles in this sort of survival sort of first person shooter genre, really uh, have have lasted for many many years. So it, it does. There's no like you know definitive end date on when the game will stop being played. Um, if it success and it's already shaping up to be pretty high potential and then of course we've got you know i didn't even mention here that there's also the potential you know for them porting this across to consoles as well so you could then got all the that expanded market there so yeah a lot a lot of a lot of potential for the game to do well for the company and this is even just with a conservative estimates for what the the sales figures will be but yeah i mean if it if it really did become a a similar level hit to something like rust or whatever then then it would be a astronomical return but um but yeah let's let's not think about that when we're talking about the game here we're just just talking about a very conservative it'll do you know moderately well that's what we what we'll factor into our calculations here So let's um, move on to the upcoming releases. So, and we'll look first at the ones from Tiny Build, and then after that, we'll we'll have a look at the ones from Versus Evil, the uh, sort of uh, publisher that Tiny Build acquired. Um, I think at the end of twenty twenty one, maybe I'm getting the date wrong there, but yeah, the other publisher that Tiny Build owns. Uh, so, with the future in mind, let's take a look at some of the upcoming release pipeline uh in total there are 20 new titles in development uh 30 if you include dlcs and console ports uh not all of which have been announced so we only know of a, a certain number of these so many are built around existing ip that the company hopes to build into franchises but there are also quite a few that are entirely new so first, let's have a look at Punch Club 2 Fast Forward. Um, so this is actually a game that has actually now come out um, as we've now passed the 20th of July, which is its release date. Um, so we can actually have a look, maybe a, a little bit of live live data for it. But let me just first start by reading out what, what I was thinking at the time, and we can do a little bit of a comparison. So first up, we have Punch Club 2 Fast Forward, the sequel to the popular Punch Club set for release on the 20th of July. The developers, Lazy Bear Games, have a good track record with both the original Punch Club and Graveyard Keeper. Another of their another of their titles released in 2018. Um yeah, sorry. And Graveyard Keeper, another title released in 2018, both being commercial successes likely to have sold comfortably over 1 million copies across all platforms. So quite incredibly, Graveyard Keeper still manages daily peak concurrent player counts above 2,500. So yeah, it's um even dwarfs some of the other <laughs> the bigger games we've, we've talked about in terms of um, player counts. It's just that kind of really addictive, um, cosy game, I think. I mean, it's not so okay, but yeah, that kind of just management 
uh simulation kind of type game really uh really just has that addictive loop that can just be played for like into infinity um so punch club 2 currently has 5833 followers on steam and is number 227 in the most wishlisted upcoming games the prior entry was released too long ago for me to get comparative stats on the number of followers prior to release but it currently has 43,199 um, to which the sequel can be marketed. The game studio themselves have a decent reach with 22.3 thousand followers on Twitter. Um, yeah, and I, I don't think Tiny Bull owns the IP for this game. I think it's still retained by Lazy Bear Games, the developers. Um, so we can expect profits to be somewhat lower than if they did, but the prospects are still good for a decent return so let's just have a, a little interesting exercise here let's have a look at um steam db um let's see if i can yeah, go up there good um so we want to have a look at um, see what we see how the game has been doing so we've got so far 416 reviews of since its release so in the first three days of which 84.13 percent are positive that's that's good have a look at the charts we can see um wow it's uh still doing very well and it had a growing number by look of it 4388 players online right now and the 24-hour peak is 5,509 so still yeah daily peaks have been going up since release as you'd expect considering it's been over the weekend um yeah even at the even in the troughs sort of getting over 3,000 just in the troughs um so yeah very active uh right now and it's number 39 in in the top sellers right now in store data so it's doing quite well there um I think let's have a look back at Steam DB. Yeah, it's actually you can see trending games. It's at the top of the list of trending games on Steam DB. So yeah, we're we're doing well. We're doing well from that game. It's been a it looks like it's been a solid release. Um yeah, so it's just uh looking pretty positive there. So let's have a look then at the next title, which is um, Black Skylands. Black Skylands has been in early access since July 2021 and is set for its version 1.0 release on PC and consoles on the 15th of August. Game currently has 25,526 followers on Steam, 8.8 thousand across Twitter and Facebook, and 8,556 members on Discord, positioning it well for a strong launch. TinyBot has acquired the IP for this game, so we can expect a high level of due diligence on the game's quality prior to release and maximal profit capture. So yeah, um, this one, 15th of August, so we should start, we should see how that does fairly soon. But it's already already well positioned, got a decent number of followers in the early access stage. And yeah, we're I think this is one that would be a great fit for some consoles as well um especially things like the 
the switch and stuff. So it's um definitely a definitely got good good potential here. So next we've got um slime three K rise against Despo. So Slime 2K is set in the same universe as Despo's game and expected to release in 2023. This new title currently has just 832 followers on Steam, but should benefit from the substantial following of its predecessor, which amounts to 29,679 on Steam, 9.7,000 across Twitter and Facebook, and 3,115 on Discord. This is another release where Tinybot owns the IP, so the company should capture most of the revenue. So next we've got I Am Future. So I Am Future has accrued a very solid 11,666 followers on Steam, many of which came after the release of, the, of a demo in January. The success of the game and the fact it is currently the 165th most wishlisted upcoming game on Steam give it a good chance of success for its launch on the 8th of August. As far as I'm aware, develop the developers retain the IP for this game, so TinyBuild's profit share will be smaller than otherwise. The company doesn't make any of the, of its de of the details of its publishing contracts public, but they typically give the publisher, so this is just publishing contracts in general, typically give the publisher a 30 to 40% share of the game royalties after recouping the or any upfront contribution made to the developer. So I did quite a good exercise here looking at a few different um, resources, looking at some talks from uh, lawyers specializing in publishing contracts for developers and so on at, at various development conferences. And I had a look at a few um, different articles and so on as well. And it seemed to be these kind of figures were were representative of so giving the typically the publisher getting like a 30 40 percent share of the royalties and kind of often getting if they've made an upfront contribution let's say half a million dollars or a million dollars or whatever to the develop to the developers to get the game developed and and so on they will then get that upfront back uh, faster than just their 30 to 40 percent share so they might end up getting 100 percent, or it might be like 80 or 90 percent of the revenue initially uh, from the game comes to them until they've recouped their costs um the upfront costs paid to the developer and then after that point then it will be a this revert back to this kind of 30 to 40 percent share um but yeah iron features is interesting this one's going to be i think the next release that we see so it's coming out on the 8th of august and um they've actually got a closed they've got a, a closed play test which i'm probably going to participate in um today to have a this is um sunday that i'm recording it sunday the 23rd so i'll uh have a go with that hopefully help to hopefully there won't be any there won't be any bugs to discover but yeah just help with the last little bit of testing before it before it goes out which is a cool thing to be able to do. You can, as a shareholder or whatever, you can actually <laughs> help to Im improve the chances of success of some of the titles, participate in some of the, the testing. Um, so I encourage anybody that, that is a shareholder or are interested um, to do the same. Get a, You can get a little preview of the, some of the titles before they come out and, and help to, to test them and iron out 
any bugs and reduce the the chances of 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 issues on launch that that will impact its momentum. So next we've got Streets of Rogue 2. So this is an open world sequel to the original hit success Streets of Rogue. Uh, we don't have a release date for this one yet, but it has already garnered 11,909 followers on Steam and is the mo the 136 most wishlisted upcoming game on the platform. It should also benefit from the Steam following of the first game, which continues to grow and currently totals 93,501. So tiny, and what's incredible about the first game is it was just made by one guy. Um, so Tiny Build acquired the IP for this game from its developer, Matt Dabrowski, or Dabrowski, Matt Dabrowski, yeah, probably that's the answer back in 2021, so we can expect the company to receive most of the game royalties. So yeah, if, you, if they own the IP, obviously that 30-40% share probably going to swing around and they'll probably end up getting a much higher portion. Um, but it, it does mean they probably pay a lot of the... Uh, they, they, they'll definitely be paying all the upfront expenses or whatever to the, to the developers to incur the yeah, they'll pay for all the development expenses, and then, uh, but yeah, they'll get a much higher share of the royalties from the platform afterwards. Um, so next we've got Roman Food Fighter Arena. We don't yet have a release date for for Roman, and things have been a little quiet on the development updates front. But the game certainly has a lot of potential. This is especially the case for co on consoles as it's a natural fit for controllers. I mean, it, it looks quite similar. If you have a look at the game, it looks quite similar to some some games you'd see on the on the Switch or or Nintendo Switch or other consoles. It looks a little similar to maybe something like Splatoon. Or it's just like a kind of a real arena brawler type game with all sorts of, you know, the, the standard kind of modes of effectively capture the flag and also, you know, just battles and what have you kind of like stuff. So it's um yeah, appeal it will appeal to fans of those kind of those kind of games. And it really does look very well put together. Um great, great art style and so on. Um so yeah, I'm, I think this will be a, a good hit when it when it's released. As long as it's um as long as it's polished, which is I think as I'll get on to, I think it's uh, the time that they're uh taking to, to develop it and this sort of how long it's been since we originally heard about the game um is, is a positive because it means hopefully they're really ironing out all of these all of these any bugs and issues and stuff like that to, to make sure it really does come out as a polished release. Um and yeah like I say it'll be a, a natural fit for PC and consoles at once. So um so yeah Tiny Bird acquired the IP for this game back in August 2021. And it's good to see they're taking the time to really get the game perfect before its release. It's also quite likely that we'll see a simultaneous launch on PC and consoles, which it significantly adds to the development time. Currently, the game has 3,205 followers on Steam, where it is the 707th most wishlisted upcoming game, 2,500 followers on Twitter and Facebook, 1,542 members on its Discord server, um yeah and they've 
already had a play test, but I expect they'll ramp up the community engagement as they get closer to the release. So next we've got Totally Reliable Adventure Party. This game is the second entry in the Totally Reliable franchise, following on from Totally Reliable Delivery Service. The previous entry sold well, particularly on consoles, but is very much a Marmite game, with players either loving or hating it. This can be seen from the reviews on the Xbox Game Store, where 39% are 5-star and 40% are 1-star. Totally Reliable Adventure Party brings the same ragdoll physics mechanics that characterize the first game to the action RPG slash dark fantasy genre. We don't yet have a release date, and there isn't much marketing material beyond a Steam page with some screenshots and description text, so not much to, to report regarding follow numbers, etc. What I can tell you, though, is the first game has a decent following across various platforms, which should help with promotion, and TinyBuild owns the IP. Next, we've got Hello Engineer. So Hello Engineer brings an entirely new genre to the Hello Neighbor franchise, expanding its player base in the process. It's hard to get a gauge on how well the game will do since it's uncharted charted territory for the series, but being part of the wider franchise will certainly help give it some early momentum. The game is set for release at some point in 2023. TinyBuild owns the IP for the Hello Neighbor franchise, being one of the company's first IP acquisitions. So yeah, this is a real expansion out into a different kind of genre for the franchise. So it's um trying to sort of bring in different player bases. Like I I'm not a, the biggest fan of sort of stealth type games myself. So um I've perhaps not been so wouldn't have been so attracted to Hello Neighbor and things like that. But this Hello um, engineer does look quite interesting potentially be one that would appeal to me and i mean if they came out with a a, a sort of tactical or um turn-based combat type game or something like that for the franchise that would definitely be something that would draw me in as a player so um or yeah or something something along those those lines so yeah as they're exploring and moving the franchise out into different um genres and sort of game game types i do think um yeah they've got the, the potential of just to keep expanding that the overall player base so yeah it's a it's a good move it's a natural thing to do with the franchise it's something you've seen with the you know you look at nintendo with mario and stuff like that they've got all sorts of um they've got the, the standard kind of original 2d and then 3d platformers that they they did a sort of expanding out and then you've got um sort of the characters featuring in brawler type games like super smash brothers and you've got um more sort of strategic i think there's puzzle sort of solving games as well with uh they've added and then you've got uh mario kart sort of a racing game and then you've got um they've done a more sort of tactical turn-based game called a game called mario versus rabbids um which is uh, again a completely different kind of genre so and i think that potentially would appeal to me more perhaps than than some of the other ones so yeah it's, it's kind of they've got different games for different people and and different types of players and so it's yeah it's just it's just a good 
if you've got a if you've got an IP or a successful IP a successful franchise to expand out into these different um game categories and pull in different players into the franchise. And then maybe they'll end up playing other other entries in it and expanding their own um dress set and so on. Uh right, so next we've got Kill It With Fire 2. So the latest entry in the Kill It With Fire franchise is set for early access release on Steam in Q4 2023. The game doesn't have a massive Steam fo uh, following yet, but we can expect to see the numbers grow as it enters early access and people get a chance to test it out. The first entry in the series has 7,418 followers on Steam, and the wider franchise has greater than 5,000 across Twitter and Facebook and 5,251 on Discord, giving the new game a decent reach on launch. Tiny Build owns the IP for the Kill It With Fire franchise. So yeah, we can um, can expect the maximal kind of revenue capture there. Um, yeah, Kill It With Fire is an interesting one. I think it has done pretty well. I think it's another one that's done probably better on consoles. I mean, they did the, the VR launch and it's probably been one of the most out of the ones they've done I would say pretend probably the most well received. Obviously, it didn't draw as the IP wasn't as well known, so it didn't draw as many um, players as the the Hello Neighbor Hide and Seek did. But um, it's definitely just you know just on its own standing, it did very well with reviews and, and pulled in over two hundred and fifty reviews, or whatever, on the Meta Quest sort of platform. So yeah. It's a, I mean, it looks like a really fun game. That is one that I probably would enjoy playing actually as well. Um, just as it as it stands, um, and the new one really does look like a big, a big expansion into the, sort of taking the, taking the game concept of just going around a house or whatever kind of stuff to into a sort of an intergalactic scale, and it almost has a bit of a feel of. Um, uh, Starship Troopers or something <laughs> in some respects looking at it and I, I think that potentially was an influence um, but yeah so next up we've got Pigeon Simulator so Pigeon Simulator is another physics sandbox title being created by Hackjack one of Tiny Build's internal development studios we don't currently have a release date for the game but it's managed to accrue a pretty decent following of 5,075 on Steam and is currently the 694th most wishlisted upcoming game. Uh, not much more to say on that one uh, at this stage, but um, it does it does seem to have a a decent sort of following for it. And the um, the previous game from Hackjack, uh, can't remember what it was called, but it was basically a a cycling simulator where. Um, mountain bike sort of simulator where with pretty graphic injuries if you've uh if you've actually came off um yeah so next up we've got level zero so the level zero is an asymmetric survival horror pvp player versus player set for release at some point in 2023 the game currently has 5990 followers on steam whereas the 330 the 31st most wishlisted upcoming game it's definitely a double a title with very glossy 3d graphics so we can expect it to be one of the higher budget releases this year 
And uh, I believe the IP is owned by the developers, Dog Howl Games. So it'll be released under a third-party publishing contract. Right, so next we're going to move on to three pretty high potential titles that the, the company has recently announced. So the first of which is Sand. So Sand is the first of three big titles announced in June during the PC gaming show where the Tiny Build had an exclusive pre-show slot. Um, I think they also featured on Gorilla Collective, another one, another sort of more indie-focused um, gaming show. Um, yeah, and, uh, and perhaps some other places as well. But So the game is described as a vast open-world PvP VE where players build giant walking tramplers to ride around the expansive environment. No release date has been announced, but it currently has 9,291 followers on Steam and is the 287th most wishlisted upcoming title. So, um, and the game is being developed by Holograph, one of Tiny Build's internal studios uh, based in Ukraine, who have previously worked on Secret Neighbor. It will therefore be first party IP. So, we've got a couple of um, pretty good graphics here which i've uh, screenshots i've included here just showing you an idea of the how good it looks and um what this in this case you've got like a bit of warfare going on between two tramplers uh, in the first one here and then we've got another one just a, a running on the sand dunes with a, a big moon or other planet visible in the sky and uh, showing you that it's, it's not on earth and um yeah, and and the and a trampler viewed from the outside and stuff. And it, yeah, there's some good, some good graphics available here. Um, so yeah, that's looking like a really high potential game, and it's similar, I guess, to something like um, Dead Side in the in the big PvP VE or, or PvP PvE player versus player, player player versus environment, big ulti uh, online multiplayer, fast open world sort of type of game. Um, yeah, it looks really interesting. Um, that one does. I think that's that's got a lot of potential. Um, so next up, we've got Ferocious. So Ferocious is the second of the aforementioned big titles announced in June, described as a first-person shooter set on a mysterious prehistoric island. The visuals they've released so far are quite frankly stunning. And from the trailer, it looks to have good gunplay. As sand, we don't yet have a release date, but Ferocious currently has 14,409 followers on Steam, and it's the 146 most wishlisted upcoming title. So yeah, pretty pretty good ranking there on the Steam wishlist there. The game is being developed by OMYOG Studios, who, as far as I'm aware, retain the IP. So let's have a quick look. We've got a couple of graphics here, so just give you an idea. It's really really looking beautiful um this sort of jungle tropical island kind of uh feel with all the dinosaurs and, and what have you and then yeah you can sort of see some of the gun mechanics and it looks like there's a lot of uh environment there's a lot it's kind of a. it's i think they described it as over the top kind of action so there's like a lot of things can be destroyed like all of the environment can be completely shredded by bullets and what have you kind of stuff so yeah, it looks like it'll be really good fun. Um, 
and it reminds me of um i think and i, I think i had a look at the, the youtube trailer and like pretty much half the comments were people saying oh this takes me back to the um king kong game that was released um back in the day i remember playing that on the xbox 360 or something it was just great yeah so i think there's a lot of there's a nostalgia element to this one as well people wanting to play like a souped up sort of modern take on something something along those lines um so yeah definitely uh definitely an audience base uh, you know set up for this one so um Critikov is the next one so the third release announced in june was Critikov, described by the developers as Animal Crossing on the high seas. And I think from the screenshots, um, you can see, and I'll uh, expand in a minute, you can really see what why this is the case. This game would be categorized as a cozy life sim, contrasting significantly with the previous two games. At present, its Steam following is 1,065, and it sits pretty far back in the wishlist rankings at 1,224. But I think this is this is going to be more of a hit on consoles and PC. The game is being developed by Gentleman Rat, who I believe retained the IP, and is set to release on PC and consoles during 2023. So this is one of those three titles that's actually potentially going to come out this year. Yeah, I think this will be a big hit on on the Switch, for example, because um, technically, potentially going to be appeal a lot to um, to kids as well, and this is going to be one that. Um, and generally, I don't think younger kids and stuff that will be playing. I would don't get me wrong. There's a lot, plenty of adults that like playing these kind of games as well. Um, but yeah, it definitely will have that appeal to kids as well. Um, this will be a game that, and, and they generally, I don't think, play on the PC much. So this will definitely be a one for them to push and market a lot on the on the consoles when they release it. So finally, for Tiny Build, we've got Train Valley World. As the name suggests, Train Valley World is a transport simulation game which follows on from Train Valley and Train Valley 2. Tiny World did not publish either of the first two games, so you could say it's a publishing win for the company. Given that the developers are based in Vilnius, Lithuania, this publishing engagement could well have come from the DevGam conference held in the city. We don't have any Steam follower data for Train Valley World, as it was only announced a few days ago. But the prior two games had 19,712 and 14,354 followers, respectively. And the franchise has 2,189 members on its Discord server. The release is currently slated for some time in 2024. So yeah, I mean, this is a... If it is the case that this would this came off the back of um, the DevGround conference, and that just just goes to show, and I mean, I have I know there definitely have been titles in the past that have come out of the conference, so it def definitely goes to show the value of that conference for sourcing a new IP for the company, and also just building up relationships, even if they don't do it directly in the conference, just building up their relationships with developers, and um, you know, just just generally promoting the, the studio overall um yeah and i mean it just show, goes to show as well that they they do have this 
good presence in sort of Eastern Europe, uh, which is something fairly fairly unique. I know there's there are other publishers like Eleven Bit and stuff like that out there, but they haven't really been doing that much um, publishing of third party titles that I've I've seen. Um, and then you've got you know. Um, 3D project, the guys behind The Witcher and so on, based in Poland and stuff as well. Um, but yeah, it does seem to be that uh, quite a lot of the other bigger studios and stuff of like that don't don't have such a presence in. So I think Tiny World does seem to have one of the biggest presences in Eastern Europe out of um, any of the studios I've seen, which is I think is a real advantage. It's allowed them to really source some some good games and. And get a lot of access to talent and games, as you've seen with The Witcher and what have you, stuff that have come out of um, and Cyberpunk um, that have come out of Poland. Effectively, you know, it's it's very much a a part of the world where where game development is a really big thriving industry. So having access to that market is is really and being a a good presence in that market um, is is very good. A good competitive advantage for the for the company. So, upcoming releases for Versus Evil. Versus Evil, the publishing studio acquired by Tiny Build in November 2021, has a pipeline of five titles set for release in 2023 and 2024. As far as I can tell, all are new third-party IP, illustrating that the studio has yet to make the shift to the first and second-party IP model of its parent. Let's have a quick look at each of them in turn. So first up, we've got Tamarack Trail. Tamarack Trail is a deck-building roguelike developed by Yarrow Games, which puts a unique spin on the genre by replacing cards with dice, rolled with a physics-based rolling system rather than a random number generator. The game currently has 836 followers on Steam and is the 100. 1,563rd most wishlisted title um, on the platform. It's set for to release at some point in 2023. Stray Souls is the next one, and it's a third-person action horror game being developed by Jukai Studio, who say they've taken inspiration from the classics of the genre, Resident Evil, Silent Hill, etc., it was also announced on the 11th of July that the game will feature some original music from the legendary Silent Hill composer Akira Yamoka. The game currently has 3,775 followers on Steam and is the 509th most wishlisted upcoming title, with its release expected in 2023. This could be this this game definitely has got quite a bit of potential. Um, uh yeah it does look quite good from the trailers so yeah, it could be interesting to see how this one does especially with that kind of some of the partnerships they've and tied backs to classes of genres and so on silent hill in this case um which with the with the composer that potentially could help to draw in some people from that that they're fans of that game and we've got broken roads Broken Roads is being developed by Broken Bear Bites, who, which is an Australian Australian development studio, I believe, who describe it as a narrative-driven RPG 
that brings exploration, strategic turn-based combat and meaningful philosophical choices to an all-new Australian post-apocalyptic setting. The game currently has a substantial 12,917 followers on Steam and is the 173rd most wishlisted upcoming title. Its release is expected sometime in 2023. So this this is looking, just from the face of it, the most high potential title um, that Versi was publishing. So um, yeah, we'll have to see how this one does. Suddenly got a, a good following at the moment and and a good wishlist ranking. Next, we've got Lil Guardsman. So Lil Guardsman is a unique title being developed by Hilltop Studios wherein you play as a 12-year-old girl covering her dad's shift as a castle gate guard, tasked with deciding who to admit to the castle. It currently has 878 followers on Steam and is the number 1,153rd title in the wishlist rankings, uh, with a release expected sometime in 2023. Yeah, this one looks quite interesting. It's uh, obviously not quite as highly high up the wish list rankings and whatever and followers on Steam and stuff, but it looks quite an interesting title. It might be one that appeals quite well to players on something like the Switch or whatever. Just just depends how they how well they market it and so on. Um so next we've uh, or finally we've got Monolith Requiem of the Ancients. So Monolith Requiem of the Ancients is an action RPG title been developed by C2 Game Studios. Just, I might be misremembering, but I think they were out of Hong Kong. Maybe maybe not, but it's. Um, I think that was the case. The game doesn't have much of a following at this point, as the game was only announced on the 11th of July. There's not much to go on regarding its likely success at launch in 2024. Well, we do have a trailer if you want to have, go have a look at that. Right, so that's, um, let's move on to have a look at the 2022 uh, annual report. So uh, let's start with the strategic report. Um, so a major highlight for the year was the successful launch in H2, or the second half of the year, of three titles with budgets in excess of $1 million that achieved an average moik or multiple of invested capital by year end of 1.9x, very close to their lifetime target of 2x in just a few months. This serves to demonstrate the company's ability to deliver high, higher budget games costing one, well, between one and $5 million with two to five year development cycles. TinyBuzz pipeline has expanded substantially with more than 20 titles currently in development and more than 30, including monetizable events such as DLCs and console ports. So we've already mentioned that. Um, we've seen similar growth in the back catalog, which now includes more than 80 games, representing 80% of revenues, of gaming revenues. Portfolio diversification has also increased, with the top three games now contributing 30.5% versus 44.1% in 2021. Management has disclosed a change in accounting treatment for own IP software development costs. They are now amortized over 36 months in a 40-35-25 ratio rather than two-year straight line, reflecting the impact 
the move to games as a service is having on game life cycles. They were pretty long. A lot of the games are pretty long lived anyway. I mean, just look at um, look at Streets of Rogue, for instance, or or game or Graveyard Keeper or something. With many years after their release, still uh, having thousand plus concurrent players in a in a day in uh, at, at the peak of the day um so this could impact profits a little in the short term this move to uh, a longer amortization period um with a small boost from lower amortization for new releases in the first and second years but then a drop in the third year as they previously weren't amortizing anything in the third year. I don't expect the impact to be major given the large contribution to revenues from the back catalog. Yeah, so this is only really going to apply to, to new newly released titles, but um yeah, they're obviously a, a smaller you know, only twenty percent of gaming revenues, for instance, in twenty twenty two. One unfortunate piece of news was the underperformance of Versus Evil and Red Cerberus, that, which is the, their subsidiary that was acquired along with them, that resulted in an $11.1 million write-down in the carrying value of Goodwill and other assets. A silver lining is that this was offset by a decrease in the contingent consideration liability due to their own achievement being unlikely, resulting in no material impact on operating profit and no loss of cash or equity. This was a, an example of them structuring the contracts with their acquisition well because they had quite a bit of contingent consideration sitting there and so they hadn't actually paid, uh, which they hadn't obviously paid up front when they did the acquisition. And so when things weren't doing quite as well and they didn't look like they were going to meet their the targets that they'd they'd hoped. Um they're able to basically just write this off and then they, there's not really been any real impact on the company um because they didn't actually pay that money in the first place. So yes, yeah, it's, it's quite a nice benefit here. So even though there has been a write down of goodwill, so effectively tangible assets have gone down, um there was a matching decrease in the contingent consideration liability um the money that was still potentially owed um to versus evil and red cerberus if if they had met their earn out achievements their um their targets um so yeah quite a well an example of a quite well structured contracts that protected shareholders there and and this is something they they have very similar things for all of their acquire hires for all the IP they pick up and so on as well. Right, so let's um, move on to have a look at some financials, and we'll start off with the income statement. So revenue grew twenty one point four percent to sixty three million two hundred ninety five thousand, compared to fifty two million 153,000 in 2021 outstripping the 14.2% growth in cost of sales to see gross profit grow 25.2% to 42,000 so what's 42,608,000 
and in 2021, this figure was 34 million and 41,000. Operating profit grew 27% to 15,923,000 and which versus financial year 21, where it was 12,532,000. This is notably faster than gross profit growth due to operating expenses increasing at a, the slower rate of 23.8%. Digging into the operating expenses a little, we can see that non-recurring expenses decreased year over year due to the costs associated with the Ukraine-Russia conflict of 1,678,000 being lower than those related to the IPO, which are 4,588,000. Share-based payment expenses were also down at 1,726,000 versus 2,452,000 in 2021. General administrative expenses were artificially elevated in artificially elevated by the 11,170,000 in intangible asset impairment charges. Um, so that's the, the goodwill being written down that are negated by the offset, offsetting gain from the 11,122,000 reduction in contingent consideration liabilities shown as other gains in the income statement. The underlying general administrative expenses were 23,233,000 after removing the goodwill impairment charge versus 14,469,000 in 2021. This 60.6% growth is largely attributable to employee benefit expenses, which grew 64.2% to 10,069,000 from 6,134,000, and amortization charges that grew 89.6% to 9,000,000, 786,000 from 5,163,000 in 2021. You've got to remember here that the workforce has effectively doubled. Um, so they're actually, because uh, they, with the acquisition of Versus Evil and Red Cerberus, they, I think they took on 50 from Versus Evil and about 200 from Red Cerberus. So more than doubled the, the workforce of the company, um, which had previously been about 150. So it's now about 400, possibly, possibly a little more. Um, so yeah, that, that's why we've seen this big jump up in uh, employee benefit expenses. Net profit grew by an even more substantial 39.7% to 11,513,000 compared to financial year 21 of 8,243,000. As income tax expense remained relatively flat and interest income such costs were negligible. Earnings per share grew 32.6% to 5.7 cents compared to 4.3 cents in 2021, slightly less than net profit due to a 6.4% increase in average share count compared to the prior year. Accounting for the dilutive effect of share options, warrants, and restrictive stock awards, earnings per share was 
5.6 cents compared to 2021, which was 4.2 cents. Growth in diluted earnings per share was 33.3% higher than earnings per share due to the lower level of share-based compensation in 2022 versus 2021. Um, so yeah, we shouldn't, going forward, we shouldn't see um, earnings per share going up less than earnings in future, shouldn't we really see any difference in the in the growth rates of those two in future because um, the um, employee benefit trust is going to be deployed to keep the share count down um, uh, to a yeah so fairly fixed level. Um, uh, minus any any acquisitions stuff they do in the future, but not something they're going to be looking at anytime soon uh, with shares anyway. Um, so yeah, it's that's definitely a something that's going to be negated in the future. That we shouldn't expect there to be sort of six point four percent increase in the average share count in uh, in future years. Um, so gross operating and net profit margins all improved in twenty twenty two with values of sixty seven point three percent compared to sixty five point three percent in twenty twenty one. 25.2% compared to 24% in 2021 and 18.2% compared to 15.8% respectively in 2021 respectively. Those were the gross operating net profit margins. They're all pretty healthy. So adjusted EBITDA, which still accounts for amortization of software development costs, but strips out a lot of other non-cash and non-recurring expenses, grew 9.5% to 24,355,000 from 22,239,000. The lower growth rate when compared to operating profit is largely explained by the impact on the latter of higher share-based compensation and non-recurring costs in the prior year. Total, so let's have a look now at the at the balance sheet. One sec. Total assets grew 9.3% to 133,804,000 from 122,392,000 in 2021 with a notable change in composition. Non-current assets increased to 81,926,000 from 57,991,000, while current assets decreased to 51,878,000 from 64,401,000. A net 29,656,000 was added to software development costs after subtracting amortization, which then added to the net 4,433,000 increase in purchased intellectual property outweighed the asset impairments totaling 11,170,000 relating to versus, versus evil. Included within software development costs is 
28,919,000 related to assets under development, for which amortization has not yet commenced. These are associated with 30 different titles, including games, sequels, ports, and downloadable content DLCs expected to be released within the next one to two years. So yeah, again. Um, during the year, the group purchased the intellectual property rights to six video games such franchises for a total consideration of 8,395,000 plus transfers from software development costs of 251,000, including non-cash consideration of 941,906 ordinary shares equating to $2,020,000. Trade and other receivables increased to 25,382,000 from 15,569,000, while cash and cash equivalents decreased to 26,496,000 from 48,832,000. Most of this cash was invested in the previously mentioned software development costs, which grew substantially year over year. Total liabilities decreased to 22,213,000 from 25,947,000 owing to a owing to the complete removal of contingent and consideration liabilities outweighing the substantial increase in trade and other receivables sorry trade and other payables to 20,046,000 from 9,290,000 the absence of contract liabilities at year-end 2022 was apparently just due to the timing of contractual payments. But as we'll see from the recent trading update, there is expected to be a definite decrease in these contracts in 2023 and 2024. And we'll give more of this. We'll talk more on this later. Liquidity remains strong at the year-end with the current ratio sitting comfortably at 2.55, a, a substantial net cash position, and a $35 million credit facility, undrawn and available for use. Total equity grew to 111592000 compared to uh, the previous year, it was 96445000 with the majority of the growth coming from the addition of the $11,545,000 profit for the year to retained earnings. One other component of equity that I neglected to mention in my previous write-up is the $1,920,000 warrant reserve. This relates to 1,511,448 warrants issued on the 3rd of March 2021 to Zeus Capital. These warrants are exercisable only if the share price exceeds £2.53 per share and each confer the right to purchase one ordinary share at the placing price of £1.69 per share. They expire on the 9th of March 2031. 
Right, so let's move on to have a look at the cash flow statement. So just a couple of points here. So cash flow from operations grew 44.4% to 19,188,000 from 13,290,000 in 2021. Net cash used in investing activities grew by a more modest 9.2% to 41,119,000 from 37 million. 656,000, but with a significant change in allocation. 35,789,000 compared to 15,085,021 was spent on software development in 2022, largely replacing the money spent in 2021 on acquisitions of subsidiaries, which was 11,781,000, 84,000, and purchase of intellectual property, 10,832,000. Um, so yeah, those two effects that they've switched from purchasing IP and uh, subsidiaries externally to investing it internally in new software development. Net cash generated by financing activities fell from 46,885,000 in 2021 to negative 485,000 in 2022 due to the share issuance that occurred in the prior year, i.e. the IPO. Combined, these three figures resulted in a net decrease in cash of 22 million 336,000 versus a net increase in 2021 of 22,519,000. Let's see, yeah. Changes in um, the prior year having the IPO, the big cash injection there. So obviously this rate of cash investment would not be sustainable unless cash flows from operations increase substantially. But this is exactly what we can expect to see happen as the game titles and development are released over the next couple of years. Management doesn't expect this to be necessary, doesn't expect it to be necessary, but should there be some shortfall in the interim, they also have the $35 million credit facility to draw on. So yeah, it's a crucial thing here is that all of this investment that's been made in these game titles, it takes two to five years for um, these games to to be completed and and to come out so we there's been this big and growth increase and i'm sure potentially spending will be cut back a little bit um with the loss some of the platform revenue and stuff like that they might have to cut some some titles that are potential candidates for development or or not uh, or or shelf them um but you know the money that's been the money that's been spent on these um, that's been invested in these projects, these new titles and so on, will will have to wait another. There is a, a lag effect before we actually start to see the revenues from those, um, which is why the expenses are capitalized um, and then amortized later because you're effectively incurring a cost now for something you're not actually going to get any revenue from for sort of two to five years. Um, so it's it's like like you buying shares in a company and then 
with your, the expectation or make an investment in a project or whatever and and uh, you hold on treat that as an asset um rather than an expense because you're then not actually going to get the return from that investment um until a given number of years goes by and it's actually a producing asset or whatever um so that's why it's done and it's international financial reporting standards ifrs standard practice so um yeah it's, it differs a little bit from perhaps something people's uh gap accounting in the us but i mean in canada and all across europe and what have you and a lot of the rest of the world they use ifrs instead which is the different slightly different treatment for some of these things but i think personally it makes a lot of sense um but that's why you can have a net profit but a negative um free cash flow effectively yeah um right so other items from the notes revenue from game and merchandise royalties grew only marginally to 40 million and 20,000 compared to 39 million 871,000 in 2021 and this came with a change of composition own ip revenue fell to 26 million 915,000 from 30 million uh, 640,000 while third party ip grew to 13 million 105,000 from 9 million 231,000 much of the growth in the latter is explained by the acquisition of versus evil which at present is primarily a third-party publisher. The fall in own IP is a different matter, most likely attributable to the timing of releases, which we'd expect to become less impactful as the portfolio grows. Most of the overall revenue growth came from development services, which brought in 22,744,000 in 2022, up from 11,477,000 in 2021. There are two factors at play here. The acquisition of a number of development services companies, publishing, porting, quality assurance, etc. But all but since they're predominantly working on internal projects, their impact should be minimal. And an increase in upfront payments from distributors like Microsoft, Xbox Game Pass, um, which is their product, which are recognized as game uh, recognized as development services. So that's the second factor. And probably the, I think definitely the most significant of the two. As we'll address later on, these payments are expected to meaningfully decrease, which is likely to impact revenue in the next year or so. As in the platform uh, revenues, which uh, contribute to these development services revenues um, is likely to decrease meaningfully in the next year or so. Um, so on the 31st of December 2022, there were 477,327 RSA share awards, um, is it restricted stock awards, restricted share awards, outstanding with a weighted average remaining contractual life of 1.42 years. On the same date, there were 
547,217 share options with a weighted average exercise price of $1.02, of which 1,812,394 were exercisable. The weighted average remaining contractual life of these options was 7.58 years. So just to clarify here, the options are things that they have a, an exercise price and manage, effectively people have to pay that price to get the shares. So the exercise price in this case, the average one is $1.02 per share. So way above the current share price. Um, so you'd expect quite a lot of these to probably lapse as they come due if the share price hasn't recovered by then. Um, and the other, uh, the restricted stock awards are going to be things that are actually just granted shares that are just granted but there's a much smaller number of those and they're basically left over from uh the ipo i believe and um and the sort of the period before it um yeah so during the year no new rsa grants were made while 318,324 share options were issued were issued with a weighted average exercise price of $1.64. So again, way higher than the current price. In fact, we, you basically would get something like a 15 plus X <laughs> return if it got to that price from here. Um, so then we had 400,000 options were exercised during the period with an average exercise price of 7 cents. Per share. So I think that those were from a period when uh, before the company IPO'd. So they were much, much. Uh, I think the share the share price was significantly lower then as well. Um, but uh, well, obviously it wasn't publicly listed, but the share price of market was quite a bit lower. So they, um, yeah, and then there's a further 103. Uh, 1,164, which had an exercise price of 33 cents, were forfeited. So yeah, people are not going to pay for them while uh, this, the share prices, they, they may as well just buy the shares on the public market rather than pay for uh, options if the, if the option exercise price is above the the share price. Um, so remuner remuneration for key management personnel fell significantly to 2,305,000 from 5,196,000 with aggregate emoluments dropping to 2,217,000 from 3,037,000 and share-based payments decreasing to 88,000 from 2,159,000. So a massive drop-off in share-based compensation for the key management. Um, so, right. We'll now move on to have a look at the trading update, uh, which they released on the morning of the AGM. So it would be the 29th of June. And they, um, yeah, this was covering sort of current trading and uh, an outlook for the rest of the year and maybe into 2024 as well. So on the morning of the AGM, the company released a rather downbeat trading update containing quite a bit of bad news. The first was that they 
were expecting a material drop in platform revenues due to an industry-wide reduction of investment in non-AAA games by distribution platforms. Since such deals made up approximately 30% of total revenue last year and were the source of most of the revenue growth, the overall impact will be significant. Given the current level of expenditure on software development and the operational leverage this introduces, adjusted EBITDA is expected to see an even more substantial decrease. The above is compounded further by the continued underperformance of Versus Evil and Red Cerberus, where management is considering strategic options to best deliver value from the businesses. This coincides with a wider review to reassess the revenue potential of a number of titles, both under development and already launched. There is also the prospect of some studio reorganization and impairment of certain assets in order to achieve the optimal cost base in light of the current macro environment. These steps are expected to be completed by no later than the release of the of the company's financial year 23 results in March 2024. While the company doesn't provide its own forward guidance for revenue and earnings, they did reference analyst consensus estimates when stating performance will be below expectations. These consensus estimates were $70 million and 8.1 cents per share for revenue and earnings per share, respectively, uh, for financial year 23. Um, Following the trading update, these were revised down to 51 million and and 0.4 cents, respectively. A further consequence of the drop in revenue is the cash, which the company previously guided to be at least $26.5 million at year end 2023, i.e. pretty flat from, pretty well flat from the year end 2022. Yeah, they were expecting basically to be able to cover their development expenses well not just expenses but the other expenses on uh, future development software titles and so on um, to be covered by the operating uh, cash flows but now it's looking like uh, yeah as I say it's now expected to drop to between 10 to 20 million dollars meaning that they're expecting to them not to be quite covered and to have to dip into their current cash balance uh, to cover them in the next uh, for 2023. So the implication being that operating cash flows will be insufficient to cover the development expenses incurred during the year. Yeah, as I was just saying. So we were also given some information about board changes. So we were given the unfortunate news that Tony Asenza, the CFO has resigned from the company and board due to personal reasons. It will probably be replaced by Jazz Salati, previously head of investor relations and mergers and acquisitions. Prior to joining TinyBuild, Jazz worked for over 20 years as an equity research analyst at firms including Credit Suisse, Redburn and Macquarie. In the trading update, we were also told that Michael Schauble, previously VP of Business Development, has been appointed Chief Commercial Officer. Michael has over 18 years experience in the video game industry, 
including four years at Microsoft, where he helped to spearhead key initiatives such as Game Pass, Microsoft AR-VR, and backwards compatibility programs. It is also worth mentioning that back in March, we were told Luke Burtis, the COO, had, and yeah, one of the early, early members of the company, had resigned for family reasons following a period of paternity leave. At the time, the board stated that they didn't intend to replace him due to the company's transition to a more decentralized structure. Uh, so I think also worth noting here that Luke um, Bertus also has something like a 7% stake between him and related parties. So then I, I just outlined some of my thoughts from this trading update. So um, the revenue and profit downgrades are unfortunate, but largely short-term and certainly not as existential to the company. They have more than enough liquidity to carry them through this period, and the sharpened focus on costs will likely prove a benefit in the long term. As detailed above, the pipeline remains very strong, and we can expect to see revenue and earnings growing again as the larger titles begin to be released in 2024 and 2025. There's also a good prospect that within a few years, the company will have a number of successful franchises built around its popular IP that, can, that it can continue to expand and monetize with new game releases and other media. With regard to the management departures of recent months, it's a pretty common occurrence for early stage executives to find they're no longer suited to the pressures of the role as the company grows and they find themselves serving a much greater number of stakeholders. We have yet to see how Jazz will perform in his new role as CFO, but I can say from my interactions with him both remotely and in person that he certainly comes across as highly competent, so I don't have any concerns at this stage. I've not had contact with Michael uh, Shawbel, but his career record certainly does seem a good fit. And I have absolutely no doubts about Alex as CEO, CEO and think he is well suited to the role. I'd go as far as to say that his stake and leadership position in the company are a major draw as an investor. So yeah, finally, I then, oh, well, not finally, but um, I next sort of go on, going on to talk a bit about the AGM, which I attended on the 29th of June. Um, so yeah, I'll just go there and walk through some of the questions that I asked and sort of a rough idea of the responses I got back. So um, as mentioned at the top, I attended the AGM on the 29th and had the opportunity to ask management a pretty exhaustive list of questions. Uh, so I thought it'd be instructive for me to go through some of the events and discussions that took place. So uh, yeah, it was obviously finding out about the trading update and the, the bad news that entailed, I did uh, revise my list of questions quite substantially or added quite a few additional entries on there. Um, but as I was on the train going down to London in the morning before the meeting. Um, and then, uh, and yeah, and I think probably the first and foremost question I didn't actually uh, write down here in these answers, I'll just mention it. First and foremost question I asked was, is the company going to need to do any kind of equity raise to get it through uh, this potential downturn while we're waiting for the, the pipeline of titles to start to be released. Um, 
and to get the revenues from them. Uh, or is it going to be, you know, very well covered by the current cash reserves and the the uh, liquidity provided by the credit facility? And they said absolutely no, no chance of a, an equity raise, um, and they don't even expect to to need to touch the. Um, and this is a this is a question which I've included later on, but they didn't they didn't need they don't expect to need to touch the thirty five million dollar credit facility at all, um, even in their most extreme sort of downside scenario. Uh, they're they're still expecting to have plenty of cash just in their in their bank account currently to to cover everything. Um, so any shortfall from the operating cash flows. So um, yeah, anyway, let's uh, let's go through some of these. So. So let's start with the business of the meeting. So six resolutions were presented to shareholders, all of of which all but the sixth that would have permitted any shareholder with a greater than 30% stake to purchase additional shares without making an offer to purchase the whole company passed. So the failure to pass this final resolution is unfortunate as it would have allowed Alex, the CEO, CEO to purchase additional shares, an act that could have served as a catalyst for share price recovery. So moving on to the questions, I asked the following. So obviously that first question I mentioned that um, I didn't include here, but uh, moving on to the first I've listed. So for the annual bonus targets, have you considered using per share metrics that align better with shareholder returns? And if so, what made you decide to use adjusted EBITDA and revenue instead? Um, so this was, I directed this largely at, Henry K. Lafayette is the uh, the chairman, um, and so the response I got back was, um, in response, I was told that this would be a topic of discussion at their upcoming board meeting, and so I've said, hopefully, a, a seed has been planted here. Uh, second question: What criteria do you use for deciding whether to port games to consoles? And I got that from Alex. Um, market research on how well it will sell. Um, and then next question: Can you talk a little bit about capital allocation? Are you seeing acquisition opportunities in the current depressed market, or is the focus right now on organic growth? So the answer was the latter. Acquisitions are off the table for now, but it's a less crowded market for finding new titles to publish. So yeah, they're, they're able to potentially capitalize on on the the fact that there's obviously still the same number of developers wanting to publish games and so on, and and they've now actually got the the pick of the litter, as they say, for the um for the best the best IP, the best titles out there. So it's potentially potentially positive as a company that has um a fair amount of. Uh, of cash and liquidity available. Um, yeah. So next question, are there any learnings you've taken away from the versus evil acquisition? Is there anything you do differently with similar such transactions in the future? So the answer was the versus evil acquisition was the only one they've done where they didn't already have an existing relationship with the company or a deep understanding of the product, as was the case with Deadside. Alex has played thousands of hours of similar games like Rust and PUBG, Players Unknown Battleground. 
They underestimated how difficult it would be to change the culture of the company to match their own. Next question. In hindsight, do you think Farwell pioneers would have benefited from early access prior to the launch of Black Skylands or Deadside? The answer. The focus was on the console release since it would be unique to those on those platforms. But consoles don't really have an early access program. So I've added on here that this does answer the question of why early access wasn't used, but it's still questionable that the game was allowed to be released in such a broken state. Next question. Does the total employee benefit expense figure of $11,795,000 include external contractors? The answer was yes, and for comparative purposes, it has in prior years also. Question. I'm having a little trouble reconciling the increase in receivables and payables used in the calculation of cash generated from operations to the respective figure shown in the balance sheet. Are there some additional variables involved here? And I got back. Yes, there are additional factors present, the most significant of which are accrued acquisition and software development payments, which are classified as payables. So you, they they're seen as payables in the balance sheet, but they go through the uh, cash flows for slash from investment section in the cash flow statement. So yeah, they don't, they're not shown in the cut work and capital movements in the operating cash flows and despite being recognized as, as payables. Um, yeah, because these, I guess, yeah, there, there's no, there hasn't been any cash transferred at this point and they might be um, non-cash payments, mostly, but I think that would have been contingent consideration, I believe. But anyway, um, so next question. Do you expect to need to use your $35 million credit facility to cover any near-term shortfall in cash? And I got a very definitive no on this one. And pretty much not in there. I think they expanded and said something like, not even in their sort of worst-case scenario. Uh, so question, what kind of return are you getting on your VR releases versus other formats? So the answer was that VR is mostly a strategic investment to build the game franchises. And that's what we discussed a bit earlier. So yeah, some of these questions and answers here, I've kind of inserted um, what I got back into some of the other parts of the report. So if some of them sound like I'm kind of repeating things, it's because uh, they're things that I mentioned in their appropriate context in the, um, in the earlier discussions. So finally, I asked... Um, and there were a few other questions, but these were these were the most pertinent ones that I put down here. Um, can you give us an idea an idea of the proportion of game revenues that come from platform deals? So the answer was pretty well. All development services revenue is from platform deals, so roughly thirty percent in twenty twenty two. So yeah, that was where we got the sort of thirty percent figure um, we were talking about earlier. Um, yeah, because it's pretty much all of the the development services revenue. So finally, um, the final section here, we talk about valuation. So Tiny Build has become a rare beast, a high quality company trading at a valuation that implies imminent bankruptcy, a possibility I consider vanishingly small. 
let's put this into numbers. Assuming a share price of 10 pence per share and a net cash of $15 million, price, the price to earnings is 2.3x, price to operating cash flow, 1.3x, price to revenue, 0.4x, price to book, 0.2x, EV to earnings, 1.0x, EV to operating cash flow. So this is EV is market cap minus the uh, the net cash balance here, or net debt, which in this case is is negative because it's a net cash balance. Um, and so EV to operating cash flow is zero point six x, EV to revenue zero point two x, and EV to book zero point one x. So yeah, just just ten percent of the uh, of the book value of the company. Um, so yeah, pretty pretty crazy, crazily cheap figures here. Um, but I go on to say, now you might say these ratios are calculated using last year's figures, except for net cash, and would be significantly lower if they were, if calculated on a forward basis. This is true. Earnings are expected to be substantially lower. Raising the values of the PE and EVE ratios, and there are likely to be some asset impairments that lower equity and thus increase the price to book ratio. However, much of this is temporary and a result of rapid growth in the development pipeline where expenses incurred precede revenue by several years. I believe there's I believe it's highly probable that the company returns to the earning level of last year as the cash invested in development flows through to revenue with a decent multiplier. Here's the beauty of the current price though. Even if the entire pipeline is worthless, the company would, could completely cut all expenditure on new titles and you'd get your money back in under a year from the existing game royalties. Remember that 80% of revenue in 2022 came from the back catalogue. You couldn't really ask for a greater downside protection than you have now. Now you might be wondering, why is the stock trading at such a seemingly irrational valuation? A liquidity, dear Watson, a liquidity. On the 3rd of July, we heard that Martin Curie Investment Management Limited, boo boo, sold their 5.02% position, equating to 10.2 million shares on the 29th of June. Given the substantial insider ownership of the company, this 10.2 million shares equated to close to 10% of the publicly sh traded shares outstanding, and a number far in excess of the daily average trading volume. As a consequence, we saw the share price crater 80%. I mean, they weren't the only ones because I think there was something like 50 million shares traded in that day, but that, that could have been, you know, that the same shares getting recycled plenty of times afterwards or something. But um, to my mind, the current share price is a severe dislocation from the fundamentals of the business and a phenomenal buying opportunity. Comparable companies to Tiny Build trade at P ratios above 20. And so examples could be 
uh, Team 17, for instance, another AIM listed um, small independent develop, uh, developer and publisher in the based or listed in the UK and based in the UK. And the company itself has previously traded far higher. A return to grace, possibly coinciding with the resumption of growth, could provide a heady combination of earnings growth and multiple expansion, resulting in a 1,000% plus return for shareholders, so a 10x or more. And it, it wouldn't even be that crazy. I mean, look at just look at the share options of over, uh, as soon as you're getting over like a, a pound per share or whatever, you've then got your 10x. So it's just, um, yeah, just pretty crazy. But anyway, that's um, that's pretty much that's pretty much everything here. Um, so yeah, I mean, it's definitely a company that I'm. I will continue. I'll potentially continue to add to him. It's, it is undoubtedly the cheapest company in my portfolio now, and it was it was still pretty. I was buying it uh, when it was, and thought it was very cheap when it was still trading at sort of around about a ten or just below PE at um, around about fifty pence a share. But now it's obviously about five times <laughs> cheaper than that. So, uh, so yeah, it's um, definitely the most attractive opportunity in my portfolio right now. And I think, um, and and accordingly, I've I've added significantly to it i think my average cost base now is about 21 pence per share because i sort of averaged average down quite a bit um yeah it's um yeah definitely uh definitely the highest highest potential probably highest conviction bet in my portfolio as well so anyway i um thanks for uh thanks for listening and and watching i um i hope the um maybe it was a little bit better to have a, a visual form so you can see see some of the graphs and um and images and things like that that are included in the report um yes yeah, so hopefully that that was a that was a, a nice a, a good addition for anybody that isn't just listening to it anybody that wants to, to watch it on youtube um yeah i'll uh check out you can you can go look at the article yourself at firmreturns.com and uh follow me on twitter if you don't already all that good stuff. Um, yeah. All right. Well, thanks for, thanks for listening. I'll see you all in the next one.